0: I'm going to ask if you would please join me in prayer as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you because of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his name. We ask because of him and for him that you would speak. By your spirit, your spirit of power, would you speak mightily. Would you speak skillfully, God? And we know that if you speak, it will be speaking in mercy and in grace since so we ask for that. By the blood of Jesus and for his glory, do you work through your word. Amen. Christian and hopeful had just barely made it through a very trying and difficult temptation. Almost especially hopeful walking away Altogether, And as they were on their way to the celestial city, as John Bunyan calls it in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, they saw up ahead of them a, a statue, a statue of white. And as they got closer, they saw that it was a statue of a woman. And when they read the inscription on it, it said simply, Remember Lot's wife. And Christian says, yes, I, I, I remember the story reading that in the book. It's found in Genesis chapter 19, where God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their rebellion, their wickedness, and their sin. But he had graciously promised to rescue Lot and his family while he destroyed the rest. And he told them to escape and to run for your lives out of the city. He says, don't look back. Don't stop anywhere. Just keep going. Well, Lot's wife did look back. At that moment, God, in judgment upon her, turned her into a pillar of salt. It wasn't simply that she looked back, but that her heart looked back. You see, she she, it wasn't just her city of destruction, it was also her city of sin, and she longed to be there, so she was unfit to follow the Lord. And in the children's version, the little pilgrim progress, Hopeful says, the Christian, this terrifies me. Do you think it's meant to make us afraid? And Christian responds, no, not to make us afraid, but to make us careful, to make us careful. Not really is the main message, I believe, of our passage for today in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if you would please grab your Bibles and stand with me in the honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. First verse we have here in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews tells us that we must pay closer attention. I like the translation that says we must pay more careful attention. We are to be careful, not careless. That will lead to our downfall. We ought to be careful, full of care. We ought to care about what? What does he say? We must pay closer attention, more careful attention to what we have heard. And what have we heard? We've heard about God bringing about, reestablishing His kingdom for His glory through His Son, Jesus Christ. We have heard about God and all of His greatness and all of His goodness and all of His grace towards sinners. We have heard about Jesus Christ who is the suffering servant and the triumphant King who lived, died, died rose again and ascended on high where he is reigning and one day he will come again. We have heard all of this and more. We are to care about that, care about all of this that this word, this book tells us. We ought to care a great deal about what we have heard lest we drift away. To carefully attend to what we have heard is to give our attention to the Word of God by engaging our mind in our reading, in our studying, in our discussing and in our our listening to it proclaimed. We We are to carefully attend to what we have heard by giving our reverence to the Word of God, by engaging our hearts as we bow before it, valuing in faith all that it says. And we are to carefully attend to what we have heard by giving our obedience to what we have heard by engaging our lives in glad submission to all that God has said. You see, simply, we are to value what God has said because God has said it. As John Owen Puritan said, that to carefully attend to what we have heard is to consider not only the content of the Word, but the author of it. Who's speaking to us? To carefully attend to what we have heard, Owen says, is to consider the weight and magnitude of what we have heard. To carefully attend to the Word is to consider the purposes of it. That is, what, has God in, what does God intend for us to do in response to what He tells us? And Owen says we are to consider with faith, with submission of spirit, and with commitment. We are to be ready, more than that, to be eager and committed to seeking and to believing and to obeying what we have heard in God's Word because it has been measured, it has been weighed, and it is of inestimable value, of infinite importance, of eternal significance. So the exhortation is, because of the great value of this Word, we ought to pay more careful attention, we ought to care about what we have heard. That's the exhortation. But who is it for? Who needs it? Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It would be easy for the writer of the book of Hebrews to say, you guys are immature, as he says later on in the book. You, 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 are, you should be further along, and so you need this exhortation. You are going through a hard time with persecution, so you need this exhortation. But that's not what he says. It would be easy for us to say, well, I know that. I have that one family member who is, um, you know, kind of compromising on the doctrines of Scripture. I know, I know that one person in my life that they need this exhortation. There are those churches, we know the ones, those denominations. Those organizations or institutions, they need this exhortation because they are already liberal in their theology and they're drifting away. But That's not what he says. He says, we need it. Why do we need it? Why do you need this exhortation to pay much more careful attention to what you have heard? And the answer simply is that because by default we are drifters by default, we wander. Doing nothing, we go away. There is no standing still in the Christian life. In this journey heavenward, we either are pursuing Jesus or we're drifting from Him. The current, you see, is just too strong for nothing to happen when we neglect His Word when you mix the fallenness of our world and Satan's crafty schemes and the sinful bent of our old self away from God, it is no wonder that it takes no effort, it takes no skill, it takes no planning or intentionality for us to drift. It happens simply when we don't care enough. You say, yeah, but... I mean, there are people that surely there are reasons why they drift, right? There's personal factors in our lives that lead us to drift, make it harder to stay connected, indeed, for sure. And we can name them things like failure, but also success. Things like discouragement and depression, but also entertainment. Heartache and loss, but also pleasure and gain anxiety and arrogance, boredom and busyness, sin against us and sin we commit. All of these things and more, yes, are real factors, but you see, it's on both ends. And so really the issue is us. It's our hearts. We, we are far too easily distracted and lured and seduced and charmed away from the Lord. We are far too easily doubtful and leery and skeptical and cynical to God's Word. We are too easily indifferent and lazy and slothful and careless in the things of God. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Do you feel it? And does it sober you? It should. Because before one rejects the gospel in full, often he first neglects the gospel in part. So that's how it happens. It's subtle comes without warning and it comes over time slowly satan you see doesn't just say hey you, you are worshiping and singing songs to the lord jesus this morning and by this afternoon you're an atheist that's how it happens no it's often when you hear a message about exhorting you to pay closer attention to be more careful full of care to what you have heard then you say i I don't know if I need that. You assume that this message is for others, that your, your faith is strong and you're fine. When you assume that, then you inevitably neglect the gospel. You don't pursue harder and go further in and further up. And then you very easily compromise on the gospel. And compromising on the gospel, you see, is just a short step away from rejecting the gospel because you compromise such that you make a gospel that is no gospel at all. You neglect before you reject, and so we must pay careful attention. To make matters worse, there are cultural factors. There, is al- there always have been, but ours today are, are many, and I just want to point out one. We are called to live by faith. But our culture says live by sight, and maybe worse than that, live by feeling. Live by feeling. Philosophers have long since been speaking of the the three cardinal ideas that transcend above everything it is the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so when we hear a message from anywhere from a commercial or a song or a preacher we're out to ask the questions is it true and is it good and is it beautiful Asking is it true we ask is it accurate is it reliable does it tell me of objective reality Asking then if it confirms that we are to ask if is it is it good that is it does it work does it benefit me and then we ask, is it beautiful? That is, it, is it pleasurable? Does it bring enjoyment? And does it make me feel something good? You see, ours is a culture in which we reverse the questions. And we first ask, is it beautiful? That is, does it make me feel good? And if the answer is yes, we don't bother with the other two because they don't even matter to us. And if the answer is no, it doesn't make me feel good, then we reject it anyway. It doesn't matter. But if what you believe, if what you live by isn't true, then it can't be good, no matter how it makes you feel. And embracing it will always lead you astray, causing you to drift away from the Lord or keeping you from the Lord, and it will end in your inevitable destruction. Do you have ever a sense, maybe of a a lack of confidence, in the things of God? Do you ever have maybe a nagging in the back of your mind, lack of confidence about the value of following Jesus so intensely? Do you have a nagging lack of confidence about the importance of worshiping God with all of your heart and all of your life for all your days? Do you ever have a, la- a, a nagging lack of confidence about the utter truthfulness? The unique truthfulness of the Word of God. If so, it will keep you from giving your attention, your reverent faith, and your obedience to what you have heard. By lack of confidence, yes, I I do intend the intellectual questions that need to be answered and that can be. But more than that, I'm speaking of the emotional lack of confidence you know, where it just feels like it can't be true. Like it feels like it's not that important because it doesn't feel always that good. We need to get the order right, though. We need to ask, is it true? And since the message that we have heard about our great salvation is a message of good news For great joy for all the peoples, we know that it is beautiful and that it is good, but the question is, is it true? Perhaps often what we feel is that it's maybe just too good to be true. It requires too much faith to believe it, to embrace it. So in order to support and strengthen this confidence in what we have heard, the author of Hebrews gives us at least three Pieces of evidence. Three reasons for not neglecting what we have heard. Three reasons to be more careful, to care more about this great salvation. These are foundational pieces of evidence for why you should not only accept the gospel, but embrace it ever increasingly in all its fullness. Foundational pieces of evidence for why we ought to pursue Christ and be devoted to him. Why it's reasonable to spend so much energy and so much time and so much, yes, even money, paying more careful attention to the gospel so as to hold tightly to the gospel so as to receive all of the benefits of the gospel that are exclusive to it. The question that we are being given an answer to is, why make such all this fuss about it? Why make this such an all-consuming focus for the entirety of our lives? I go back often to this one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis when he says that Christianity if false is of no importance. Le- leave it alone. But if it's true is that it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. There are, there is no half-hearted Christian. There is no pilgrimage that goes halfway and doesn't make it to the celestial city. You're not a pilgrim if that's the case. You're confused or a fraud. Beloved, the gate is wide and the way is easy that promises life but only ends in destruction. And there are many there that find it. Why? Why are there so many that go that way? precisely because it's easier. Just because something is easier doesn't mean it's better. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's good. Just because it's easy doesn't mean that it's true. So let me give you three evidences of the truthfulness of what we have heard. Three reasons to pay more careful attention to it. You should have confidence Greater confidence in and greater care for what we have heard because it has come to us, first been declared to us by a superior spokesman. Let's look at verse 3. The end of verse 3, or the second part of verse 3, it says, It was declared at first by the Lord. What is it? it? Refers to the previous phrase, the great salvation. What we have heard has first been declared by the Lord, Jesus Himself. Jesus has declared it, He has proclaimed the gospel. He says that's the purpose for why he came, was to clear the good news about the kingdom. Well, this tells us that he is the spokesman. But how is it that he is the superior spokesman? Go to chapter 2, verse 1. I think that's what the word therefore is Therefore, It's taking us back to the entire previous first chapter of Hebrews chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. When we read that it says in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, we ought to hear this is the full and the final, the supreme revelation of God of His great salvation. This is it. This is the new covenant message. He has spoken to us by His Son. His Son, by the way, who is was so superior because he, is, he has been appointed the heir of all things. This spokesman is superior because it is through him that God created the world. This, this spokesman is superior because he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. This superior spokesman is he who upholds the universe simply by the word of his power. This spokesman of this message we have heard is superior because after pur- making purification for sins, and who else can do that? None. Then he sat down alone at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. As Pastor Steve told us last week, the recipients of this letter needed to have this hammered home to them. And I would say, so do we. With the new covenant covenant, and the new covenant message, this new covenant mediated by the superior savior, savior and the new covenant message that has been first declared by the superior spokesman, is better than the old covenant and the old covenant message mediated and delivered by angels. Therefore, they, the recipients of this letter, should hold fast to the great salvation, and so should we. They must pay much closer attention to what they have heard, lest they drift away from it, and so must we. They should not revert to the practices of the Old Covenant because it is obsolete, and we revert to anything else. It is foolish because they are obsolete or insufficient. We have this one message that we ought to care most about. See, this is just a lesser to greater argument he's been using in chapter 1. And so when he says, therefore, he's pointing back to it, but then in verse 2 of chapter 2, he restates it, the same lesser to greater argument. For, he says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? When he says in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, what message did they declare? The message they declared was the message of the law of God. They were giving the message of these old covenant covenant conditions. We read in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, You who receive the law as delivered by angels. In Galatians three, nineteen, Why then the law, Paul asks, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it, that's the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Earlier in Acts chapter 7, we, we read that The angels spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai where he received the law. The angels spoke to the fathers giving this message. So the angels declared the message of the law of God, who he is and who his people were to be in relationship to him. Therefore, he says, because they have received that message and it proved reliable, it was true. And every transgression or disobedience against that message received a just retribution. When they they did not pay careful attention to that message, they didn't give their attention, their reverence, their obedience to that message of the law, they received just retribution. That is deserved punishment. If that's true, the lesser message received that. How much more should we understand that we will not escape if we neglect the message of the great salvation, the full and final message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is the comparative idea of verse 1. Hebrews 2.1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention, or more careful attention. Closer than what? More careful than what? I would ask, than whom? I think he's referring to the Old Testament wilderness generation. He mentions them, and not only in chapter 2, I believe, here, but in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 10, and in chapter 12, every time as a negative example, kind of like, remember Lot's wife. She served as a negative example, as a pillar of salt. She, she, she was rescued from her city of destruction, Sodom and Gomorrah, but she was not yet in her, her home. And heart did not pay careful attention to what God had said, and she turned back. So too, this wilderness generation of the Israelites, they were rescued out of Egypt, their city of destruction, and yet they were not yet in the promised land of Canaan. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they did not pay enough attention to, careful attention. They didn't care enough about what God had declared to them in His law. And so, too, we have been called out of darkness, out of this world. And yet, we're traveling. We're on a pilgrimage home, and we're not yet to the promised land. Will you too look back? Will you drift away? Will you pay much more careful attention than they did? Will you pay more closer attention than they did? you see, the superior new covenant message is true. It's reliable as evidenced by the superior spokesman. If the message declared by angels were true, well, it's surely the message declared by the Son of God, This superior spokesman, is also true, who mediates this new covenant in its message. And therefore, how much more should we not neglect it, but pay much careful attention to it? We should have greater confidence in and greater care for what we have heard because it has a superior spokesman that declared it to us, but also because it was attested to us by the apostles. Again, verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord, this message. And then it, the same message we have heard, was attested to us by those who heard. Who, who, who first declared the message? The Lord. Who first did he tell it to? His apostles. They were the first ear witnesses, you might say. And they were the first eyewitnesses of not only what he said, but who he was and what he did. They attested to it. That is, this is apostolic attestation. That is, they're giving confirmation. They're verifying, yes, this is true. This is what Jesus said, and this is who he was and what he did. They heard the New Covenant message from the New Covenant mediator himself, witnessing his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And I think this is the crux of it for me. They're saying, Jesus, while he was alive, predicted his own death and resurrection and ascension. And then it came about, and they are confirming it. So the question here is, is their witness credible? They confirm it, but is, what, who are they that we should believe them? I think we can apply C.S. Lewis's... Um, Argument that he uses for the Lord Jesus here. And ask. Now it's got to be one of three options. They're either crazy witnesses. Crafty witnesses. Or credible witnesses. They could be crazy. You know just really confused. Maybe they they just thought they saw the Lord Jesus die on the cross. They just thought they saw him resurrected from the dead. They just thought they saw him ascend into heaven. Because they were hallucinating. The problem with that option. Is that. To receive a hallucination, you have to be psychologically primed for it, expecting something. But they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They were dejected and depressed because he was dead. They certainly were not desiring or expecting his death or his ascension. They wanted him to stay alive or to stay with them. Well, that doesn't make sense that they hallucinated it. Besides that, hallucinations by their very nature and definition are personal experiences. It's something that I can have or you can have, but not we. It's like a dream, right? And the the apostles, there were not just one of them or two of them. There were several of them, and they saw the risen Lord. In fact, over a period of 40 different days, he showed himself at different times, in different circumstances, different situations to different people, where they heard him, saw him, and touched him. At one point, there were 500 brothers at one time who saw him alive. It doesn't make sense that it's a hallucination. They can't be crazy witnesses. But perhaps, perhaps they made it up. Perhaps they are crafty witnesses, and they're telling us lies. You say, I guess that's possible because a lot of people lie about things to get fame and power and honor and glory. But what happened to the apostles? Well... Most of them died penniless and friendless in torturous ways, without any power or fame, maybe infamy. They were hated. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were scourged. They were starved. Some of them were beheaded and even crucified. If they were lying about it, how does it make sense that they would hold to it? Because you see, after the first blow, after the first rock thrown, after the first scourging, after they're in the prison for one day being starved, you think they would say, okay, it's enough. I made it up. Just joking. You don't have to cut off my head. I'm sorry. I was just lying. You see, a lot of people die for a lie, but no one dies for a lie they know is a lie. No one. They could have saved their necks any moment by saying, I got it wrong, made it up, but they didn't. Up until their death, they were faithfully declaring, it's true. All that he said, all that we are saying he is and has done is true. I know it sounds like good and beautiful, but it's because it is true. The only option we have left is that they are credible witnesses who declared the truth. You add to this God's wondrous witness, in verse 4, Jesus declared it, they attested to it, and God bore witness to it. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. <clears throat> God bore witness. How? By signs. I love that. Signs are not just supernatural occurrences, by the way. It's not just like something amazing happened, it's a supernatural, amazing, miraculous occurrence with a point like on purpose, to point to something. What is he pointing to? He's pointing back to the apostles, saying they indeed have the God-given authority, and they are telling the God's honest truth. There are several passages I can point to you to, but I'm just going to give you two. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Acts 14, 3 says, So they, the apostles, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, listen, who bore witness to the word of His grace. God bore witness, we see in, in, in Hebrews 2.4. Here it says, The Lord bore witness to the word of His grace, to this message they were declaring. How? How did He bear witness? By granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That's the point of the apostles doing miraculous wonders. They were giving signs pointing to the authenticity of and the truthfulness of their words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with unmo- utmost patience. What were these signs? They were signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, all this while God is uh, He's authenticating the truthfulness of their words, authenticating their authority to speak on His behalf. These are God-produced wondrous signs, authenticating the God-given apostolic authority and truthfulness and trustworthiness of their teaching and of their writings. All of this is meant to reinforce our faith, giving us further reasons for obeying the exhortation, to embrace it, to devote ourselves to it, to pay much more careful attention to it with great confidence in and care for what we have heard. That's the exhortation. I've been saying this whole time, though, that this is that exhortation we ought to heed and obey. But, In this passage, the exhortation is merely implied. It's not stated. What is explicit, what is stated, is not an exhortation but a warning. This exhortation is first a warning. The warning is simple from verse 1. You better pay closer attention warning because if you don't, you will drift away from it. And if you drift away from it, if you neglect it, you will receive a just retribution. You will not escape there will be no great salvation. Sinful neglect of what you have heard leads to soul drift away from the Lord Jesus, which left unchecked will lead to the inevitable just retribution. You know, this excer- this warning here comes to us because the drift comes without much fanfare. There's Subtlety, slowness to it. We don't notice it. Compromise happens bit by bit. Drift happens slowly. C.S. Lewis once said that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It happens subtly without notice that you're drifting away. That's the warning. How do you take warnings? How do they hit you? Do they bother you? Do they scare you? Warnings are not meant to terrify. They're not meant to discourage. They're meant to shake us awake and to motivate us. Remember, not to make us more afraid, but to make us more careful. And if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, I would believe that we will see in this warning actually encouragement. This warning enables us to persevere. Persevere enables us to not neglect, enables us to not drift away by encouragement in part, by encouragement. How do we see an encouragement in this warning? Well, first, this warning exposes the reality that is true of every believer, that we are drifters. By nature, we are wanderers, that we struggle to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on Him. We struggle against the current to keep ourselves from drifting and it's constant. This warning exposes that that's a reality for all of us. It's like he's saying, strugglers, take heart. This is normal for Christians, and you are right on track. I read a quote from a Puritan this last week where he said, in the winter, there's little visible difference between the living tree and the dead tree. Neither is there much visible difference between a saint and a sinner when he is giving in to temptation. Think about it. When a Christian is sinning, do they look any different than a non-Christian? Not really. You can't see any visible difference between a dead tree or a dead man and a live one, spiritually speaking. Um, And as I read that, the rest of his quote God encouraged me greatly, and I want to share with you some of the thoughts that I just was so encouraged by. But the truth is at times, God's true children they appear to be held captive by sin and in bondage to their lusts. At times, the true children of God may lack zeal for the Lord and strength of faith. At times their love may be shallow and their affections cold. At times their attention is divided and they seem to be asleep at their post. And these are times when it may be hard to see the difference between a believer and a non-believer. And therefore, Christian, don't judge your status before God by your inconsistencies, by your imperfections, by your worst moments, if you still cling to the cross of Christ, if you repent of your rebellion, and if you choose afresh the God of grace if you don't approve of your sin, if you don't approve of your drifting, if, if, if your heart is discontent with your lack of holiness and your lack of faith and your lack of obedience and your lack of care for what you have heard, if that bothers you, and if you long to return again and again to your Savior and renew your allegiance, then you are in a state of grace. If you find within you a war raging, and you feel the daily struggle to yield to the spirit of holiness waging war against your flesh, then your condition, your position before God is good. When I first read what this Puritan had to say, it nearly brought me to tears just rem- being reminded of the fact that this is normal for us. We struggle, and struggling means we are sinners. But do you know what it also means? It means we're saints. It means we're His. We don't just go with the flow and drift down away from the Lord Jesus. We fight and we say, no, I want Him. I need Him. And we fight. Be encouraged, beloved, that struggling means that you're in a good state. This warning, though, also implies that your perseverance will be unto salvation. You see, the the warning is that if you give give yourself to sinful neglect of what you have heard, that it will lead to soul drift, away from the Lord Jesus and left unchecked, it will lead to your just retribution. That's the warning. If you don't hold fast, if you are not carefully paying attention with your heart, your mind, and your life, you will drift and you will be lost but you see the opposite is also true if you give yourself to careful attention to his word if you care much about what you have heard then you will not neglect instead you will not and you will not drift you will hold fast and the end you will have a great a great salvation that's promised you will not indeed you cannot drift away if you don't neglect what you have heard if you pay much more careful attention than they did you will be saved. That's the promise. It's an encouraging promise that God has said, "If you will seek to know me and trust me and obey me in my word, then I will keep you. I will establish you in your faith. I will keep you close to me, and I will bring you home to your great salvation." He's promised. He's promised. Our spiritual life is not in our hands. But God has promised to graciously respond to our pursuit of Him in His Word. Even when it doesn't feel like it, He he will always keep His promises that He has made. But praise His name, He's done more than just promise to respond to our pursuit. He has pursued us. He pursued us first, and He pursues us still. Do you get it? He's pursuing you in this message. To the preaching of his word, he's pursuing you, saying, Don't drift, keep your eyes focused. Don't neglect what you've heard, pay careful attention to it. Give your heart of reverence to it and respond in obedience. The fact that warnings in general enable us, to me, is encouraging. That when you hear a warning from God, it moves you and motivates you and shakes you, makes you more careful. That's encouraging. And for some of you here today, you are to find in this warning a hopeful motivation to stay the course. To continue in your faith and faithfulness. And it's encouraging that for some of you, you don't need to add something to your life. You don't need to do more. Just keep doing what God has called you to. For others of you, though, you should find in this warning a hopeful motivation to move forward. That is to reinvigorate the attention you give to grow in your care of God's Word, you are to do more, to tighten your grip. For others of you, this warning is meant to give you a hopeful motivation to get back on track, that is to repent and to recommit to the Lord Jesus and to His Word. And still yet, for some of you, you were to find in this warning a hopeful motivation to begin your journey to come to the gospel, to come to the Lord Jesus, to come to this promise of great salvation, and to cling to Him. But for all of us, really the exhortation is the same, isn't it? Don't neglect it. You've heard it. Pay more closer attention, much more careful attention. Engaging your mind, your heart, and your life with reverence and obedience. I was reading a book on sin this past week, and the author said this by way of admonishment and warning and exhortation, squeeze everything you can out of God's Word. Squeeze everything you can out of corporate worship, these gatherings. If your spiritual life is dry, dig deeply into the Word. Mine it. Dwell on it. Study it. Turn it over in your mind and in your heart. Let the word of life enrich your soul. And when you get to corporate worship gatherings like this, don't be a passive participant. Engage with the prayers. Don't let your mind wander. Sing the songs with vigor. Letting your love for God propel your worship. Listen to the sermon as someone who's hungry for truth. Pay much more careful attention to what you have heard as if your life depends on it, because it does. You will drift. You must pay closer attention. You must pay much more careful attention to what you've heard. Beloved, remember Lot's wife. Remember this wilderness generation. You cannot neglect the word that you have heard today without sin. You simply cannot. You cannot neglect the word you have heard today without endangering your soul. As John Owen once said, men are apt to entertain thoughts of escaping the wrath of God, though they live in neglect of the gospel. The neglecters of the gospel shall unavoidably perish under the wrath of God. If you are neglecting the gospel, you are rejecting the gospel. This communion meal that we are about to partake of together It's not for those who reject Jesus, who reject the gospel truth. I was reading an article this morning about a very liberal theologian from the early 1900s and how he said, you can have Jesus and not accept him as the risen one. You can have Jesus and not accept him as the Son of God. You can have Jesus and not think that he was virgin born or that he really rose from the dead. He's saying you can have the good and the beautiful and it doesn't have to be true, but it's a lie. If it's not true, it can't be good, no matter how it makes you feel. Praise be to God, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is true, as well as good and beautiful. So this morning, if you're not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not receiving this gospel, what this word says, what the apostles said about Jesus, this communion meal is not yet for you. I say not yet because while you breathe, God gives you another chance. It gives you opportunity. There is hope that you can turn to Him, so do so. But don't presume upon that that time. Don't presume upon His patience and His kindness. You'll merely be storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. So when others come and partake of communion, please stay where you are and pray. Pray earnestly. And come and talk to me afterwards or put it on a connection card, or email us that you want a pastor to talk with you, or to catch another Christian that you know, ask him to help you, to talk with you, to pray with you. And this morning, if you are receiving the gospel and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've had your faith affirmed by other Christians and baptism in a church, in just a moment you can exit to your left and come up to the tables, take these communion elements, the bread and the juice with the gluten-free being to your far left, And go back to your seat to the right and take it together as a family or by yourself or with others. And as you take it, take it with encouraging hope in His grace. His grace that He pursues drifters and wanderers like us. Hopeful after He had nearly drifted away from the path of going to the celestial city After he nearly turned away from Christ. And then he saw this statue and it said, Remember Lot's wife. He said, I am so sorry that I was so foolish. I'm astonished that I am not now as Lot's wife. Why hasn't God turned us into pillars of salt? For what is the difference between her sin and mine? But then he says something beautiful. He says, Let God's grace be adored. says, let me be ashamed that such a thing should ever have been in my heart, but let God's grace be adored. That's why we are not as pillars of salt. That's why we are not yet as the wilderness generation by God's grace. So let hopefuls confession, let his lament, let his praise and his faith be yours. I mean, isn't that the posture? Isn't that what we should take? For all of those who have wandered away, whose hearts are prone to leave the God we love, we should confess, lament, and then with great faith we should praise Him. This should be the posture of when we come to the Lord's table every time. Confess, lament, believe, and praise Him. Adore Him for His grace. For those who should come, when you are ready, please do.